So according uh, to the 2020 census data, uh, there are approximately 117 to 118 million single adults above the age of 18. Uh, that now makes up about 44 to 48 percent of the U.S. Uh, economy and, and the world in which we live in, which is a very large number compared to previous decades. Now, the reason I share that is because today we're going to be talking about singlehood as it relates to God in everyday life. Now, there's a lot of us in this room that you would say, well, I'm not single, so is this message going to relate to me? And here's what I would say. Roughly, probably 20 to 25% of our church is in that singles category. And so it, it matters because there's a good portion, almost a third of us, that we need to hear this message. Uh, but also, the way I look at it is that I am a parent and I have three kiddos who are also single, though not above the age of 18. But the way that I think about this topic certainly is going to inform their view of singlehood. And so if you're a parent in this room, I would presume to believe that this is especially important for you. And then I would say this, if you are a Christ follower, and the vast majority of us in this room would say we want to follow Christ with our lives, then it also matters for us because we have a culture that is very secular and they do not see this topic, singlehood, as the same way that I see it and I hope that you'll see it by the time that we end our time together. So, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But, if my math is correct, and we have a good group of singles, and a good group of parents, and a good group of believers in this room, I would venture to say that almost all of us in this room should be very, very concerned with the issue of singlehood as it relates to our everyday life. And so, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, As you're Turning there, I want to kind of help you understand really what what it is that's happening here. Uh, Paul, uh, formerly known as a guy uh, named Saul, he was a a Hesed and loyal Jew. Uh, In in the book of Acts, we see that he had a conversion to Christ. He writes a good portion of our New Testament. In this particular book, he's writing to a church in, in the area of Corinth. And so the, the name of the Corinthians comes from that, the leading city uh, of Corinth. And in that day, there is a, a, good group, a good number of people that are caught up in a variety of things. Pagan practices, idolatry, certainly um, they, they live in a culture where there is promiscuity in every sort of way. I know that a lot of us in here, we have a difficult time putting our head around such a culture. But... That's the culture they lived in. It was a day and age where everything seemed to go. Uh, It was certainly the idea of have it your way. You like it. Hey, just do it. Uh, That was the culture. And so Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and he he wants to help them understand some of the challenges that are happening as it relates to this topic of purity. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he actually is going to just talk about just the idea that purity is of of great value. And it seems to be that there are some people in that culture who would say, well, I have a belief and a trust in Jesus Christ, and I've given my life to him. He's renewed my spirit. But they have the notion in their mind that it 
it freed up their body to do whatever they wanted. And so they had, a, in some ways, a, differentiate, a differentiation between what was going on inside of them and what could go on outside of them. And that's when Paul just says, listen, all things are lawful, but not all things are permissible. And then he goes on this whole idea of why sexual purity matters in that day and age. Because you had a lot of people who lived in the area of licentiousness. Now, that's a very big word for license or freedom. They were living in the area of freedom. They were saying, look, because I'm a believer, I'm free to do a lot of things now that maybe I couldn't otherwise do. And they were hopping in to many of the pagan practices, but under the banner of Christianity and as a Christ follower. Now, as you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's look at verse 1 together. Paul has, uh, he has a, a view in mind when he writes this, and he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then in my Bible, I'm, I'm talking out of the ESV, there's quotes. And the reason why is because the ESV translators believe that Paul was really, he was just sharing their words back with them. And a lot of their words in that culture might have been, hey, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what he's doing is he's, he's refuting two ends. He's got this end over here that there's license. And then the far other end is the view in which we would call legalism. And the legalistic view in the Corinth day was, hey, because we are now living under the banner of Christ, we can't touch any woman. And it was in one of those things that a lot of people would say, well, that was even spreading into the marriage, that there was a marriage relationship. And some of the men were even saying, well, I can't even have a relationship with my wife because of my holiness. And if that's kind of the idea of the monastic view. It's where a lot of people would say, well, that's probably where monasticism started, which was kind of the monk thought that if I could move myself out of the world and go live in a monastery with other people that have similar views, then we would all be holy. And it's the idea of removing yourself from something in order to be more holy. Now, here's what we know is that even if you and I remove ourselves from something, the one thing we can't remove ourselves from is our head and heart. And so somehow we can't seem to escape ourselves, right? And so, but Paul is just refuting. He goes, okay, there's some of you who are saying, hey, is it, is it lawful? Or is it permissible for me to have relationships outside of this one monogamous relationship because Christ has saved me and I'm free to do whatever I want with my body? He's saying, no, 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 because you've been bought with a price and you're not your own. So glorify God with your body is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. At the same time, he goes, there's a lot of you that are saying, hey, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they're saying it's good for us not to touch them. And he goes, I don't think that's the idea either. And then what he's going to do is he's going to answer some of the questions that are happening. So look at verse 2. Paul says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he refutes it and saying, look, here's a better view. The, the better view is not can I do this or should I not do this, but he says, if indeed you live in a culture where there is sexual temptation, where there's promiscuity, where there's things that don't honor God, he says the best view in mind is that you would have a monogamous marriage relationship. Now, it's very clear that it's monogamous, meaning a man and a woman, because of what he says in verse 2. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. And Paul denotes that specifically. 
And he does that because of the culture in which they live in, but also because he too knows his Old Testament. And he certainly is a traditionalist. You might call him old school. You might call him fundamental. You might call him a Bible thumper. It doesn't matter what you want to call him. Paul is saying the traditional view in which I think he is saying is the right view and the celebrated view is that a man and a woman, if they're going to leave their father and mother, should cling together as one flesh within the marriage union. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, you might be here and you go, I thought we were talking about singlehood. Why are we talking about all this marriage stuff? Well, I think it's important because Paul is about to shift. Before he does, I think he wants to make it explicitly clear what is in the bounds of God's design. And he goes, listen, what's in bounds of God's design is a man and woman who leave their father and mother and cling together as one flesh. And then they work together in a harmonious relationship of serving one another. And he speaks specifically here to the sexual union, which he says, listen, it's not good for a woman to to say, well, I own my body, or for a man to say, I own my body. Because he says, when you leave together as one flesh and you cling together, he says, now you both share conjugal rights. And he says, so what you're doing is, as he goes, you are serving one another. And in verse 5, he makes it very clear, and you're not to deprive one another. And what he's saying is, he goes, listen, it's not good to deprive one another or to forbid this gift of God in sex within marriage because if, if you do, then what's he say? The implication is you'll be tempted by Satan and he'll use a lack of self-control against you. And I think that happens a variety of ways. I think one, it can happen when you and I are apathetic to our marriage relationship and we don't see this idea of intimacy as an important value. He's very clear that the enemy will see that as an area of a foothold that he would love to slip in there and in some ways bring about... Um, incredible damage there. So he says, hey, listen, make sure that you are serving one another in a way that pleases God. And the reason why that's important is because sex indeed is a gift from God. Now, depending on our backgrounds and depending on circumstances in our life, or depending on a variety of things, we may not see sex as a gift. It may be distorted in some ways, and you may see it as gross, or in some ways it may be a God. But the reality is Paul has in view is that this intimacy in marriage is a gift from God and it's to be celebrated, not to deprive one another of it. And, and I would say this, perhaps one of the areas that I see it happen most that in terms of the depriving relationship would typically become when your marriage moves to more of a parental view. And when I say a parental view, it's I'm going to punish you or I'm mad at you and I'm going to deprive you of this because of where you are. And I don't know about you, but if your marriage ever le- leads to a parental view, it's a very damaging place to live. And so maybe you're in here and, and you would say, that's where I think our marriage lives. I feel like I'm the parent and I feel like my spouse is the child. And I would just say, hey, that's the area that you want to press against. You want to make sure that your marriage doesn't get to a place where it's a parental relationship. Why? Because it's best if you are working together 
not depriving one another because it will give the enemy a foothold. That's Paul's point. But then he makes his shift. Look at verse seven or six, I'm sorry. He says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. So what Paul is about to do, he says, I'm about to make an emphasis on my preference. And he's gonna show clearly what his preference is, but he makes very specific words count here where he says it's not a command, which he says, this is not a God-ordained thing. He's not saying this is what God has for every single person. What Paul says for him is that, that this is where I live. This is where I, this is what I believe is best. And then he's going to outline why he believes it's best that many people would live in singlehood. And that's the topic. So he says this in verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So he says, hey, let, let me say this. It's not a command. It's me speaking. But as I speak, he goes, this is my preference that you would be like I am. But he hasn't told you who, who he is or what he is yet. So flip over one more verse to verse 8. He says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He goes, that's my desire. Now, there's some of us in here, and we're like, come on, Paul. Like, what? like that's, that's unreasonable, which is, I think, important to note what he says in verse 7 when he says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul uses the word there as far as gift is the same way that he would imply a spiritual gift was used later on, five chapters later in 1 Corinthians 12. He uses the same word. So what he says is, he says, listen, singlehood is not for every single person. But he says, if it was my preference, my hope is that everybody would live in singlehood. Now, why I think that's important to us is not that I would say every single person needs to live in singlehood, because certainly I'm not. And if you're not careful, then you can take the monastic view and that you could say, you know what, in order for me to serve God fully, then I've got to be single. And I don't think that's wise. I think what he is saying is very clear, is that we ought to have full devotion to God, whether we're single or married, but he gives you the pros and the cons of each. And that's what his, his, that's what his framework is. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, he goes on to say this. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, which means those who were single, now in a relationship, he says they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I think I've been guilty of this as well in verse 9 of taking this in some ways out of context. And what you might think is, well, hey, if you're dating relationship and you can't control your, you know, your prom promiscuity, then just you're burning with passion. Just go get married. I don't think that's what he really means. I do think you could imply it in that way because God does certainly desire that we live in holiness. But what Paul is simply saying here is this. He goes, listen, if, you are, if you're single, he goes, that would be my desire. If you're unmarried or you're a widow, and he goes, and you can't live alone, then he goes, certainly the best thing would be not to burn with passion. Don't, don't live in agony, but go and be, be remarried. So what he is saying, and I think this is the, the emphasis, is he goes, if, if you live in a culture where promiscuity abounds, he goes, make sure what you're not doing is living in the midst of that, bouncing around from dating partner to dating partner, living up in a world of, again, license, 
saying, I'm just going to enjoy compatibility. And in some ways you burn with passion. He goes, that is not wise. So he seems to give you two clear alternatives. One, live in singlehood or be married. Why that matters is because if you hold those two views, that I either need to live in singlehood or I need to be married, it changes the in-between. It changes what you do in your dating relationship. Because if you're going to be single and you're going to be devoted to Christ in that way, then it means that there are certain relationships that are off the table because you have a full devotion, which he's going to show you in a second. But if you're here and you say, look, I think that I land in the camp where I'm eventually going to be married. And he says, okay, there's a particular way to do that as well that honors God. But both have devotion to God. And that's really his point. And so if you look, he's going to pick up this idea, this conversation in this chapter later on. Matter of fact, starting in verse 10, he's going to have uh, some conversation to marriage. And then a little bit past that, he's going to say, hey, live right where you are. But let's pick up in verse 28. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28. He said, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And you might ask the question, why, why does he write that? It seems so awkward. It almost makes you feel guilty that for all of us in here that we've married, have we sinned? Like we've, we've done something wrong? We should have all just remained single? No, that's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, in context, when you see um, Paul write, even to Timothy, he writes to Timothy, he says, listen, anybody who teaches that you should for, forbid marriage, he goes, that is the gospel of demons. He goes, so he is not making the case here that, hey, marriage is worse than or subpar than singlehood. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, singlehood is, is, is nothing and marriage is everything. I think what he's saying is, is that in any area that we live, whether you're single or whether you're married, he goes, your heart's devotion to Christ matters because it, it ultimately helps you see either one of those areas in your life. Here's what he says. Look at verse 28. If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. Here's what he says. He goes, singlehood is better because you don't have to quarrel with a spouse. That's his point. Now, if you are married, you know there's challenges. And there's going to be challenges from the onset. Now, by God's grace and with his help and the Holy Spirit in my life, I would presume to believe that I'm a little less selfish now than maybe I was early in our marriage. With God's help, I'm more mature now. Not a whole lot more mature, but I'm more mature than what I was as a kid. And when Kelly and I, my bride, got married, it was two kids. Two kids who didn't understand this text two kids that didn't understand our Bibles well, two kids that were not trained and discipled as thoroughly as we could have been. And as a result, it was two kids in many ways playing with fire. And by God's grace, we didn't get too burned. And I think Paul's point to that is saying, listen, if you choose to marry, you're going to have worldly troubles. And the reality is, is because it's two people 
who are having to work together and give one another conjugal rights. You're having to give up yourself and your spouse is giving up themselves for the glory of God and the good of each other. And he goes, and that could be a challenge. And I would presume to believe that whether you've been married a year or five or 10 or 15 or 30 or 50 years, that there are still butting heads of times, right? Sometimes you just still butt heads. And sometimes it's because of the prideful um, stubbornness that just rests in us. It's just something, sometimes it's like, you know what? We hadn't fought in a while. Let's have a good fight, you know, right? I'm just going to be right today. I would just presume to believe that marriage is hard, and that's Paul's point. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says this in verse 29. He goes, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Meaning, he goes, because Christ is near, he goes, I just want you to see a different perspective. And he says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. He says, listen, here's my point. He goes, if the world is passing away and our Savior is near, he goes, how do we have greater devotion to him? And he's just making the contrast. He goes, if you're a single, he goes, there's nothing that really vies for your attention. He goes, you are free to serve God in any way. You hear of revivals happening at Asbury College? Get in the car and go. It looks different for a lot of us married men. It's not as easy to hop in the car or on a plane and go, right? Because we have a wife, we have children, we have other things. There's responsibilities. And he goes, that's the point. He goes, presume to believe you're like me, which Paul went on three missionary journeys. He goes, I'm free to serve God. Now, it doesn't mean that he was free to, to not make money. He was a tent maker and certainly he had some things that he had to accomplish. But in many ways, he says, I am free at this season of my life to do what God wants. And he goes, men, what would it look like if, if you serve God in that way too? He goes, yes, you're married, but what would it look like if God got your full devotion? Yes, there are things in the world, but what if you set some of those monetary things aside in order to serve God more fully? See, his point is, he goes, it's easier for the single to do that than it is for the married. But in any case, he goes on and he just says this, verse 32. I just want you to be free from anxieties. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So he goes, the single man, he goes, Lord, what do you got for me today? And he gets up and he goes about that work. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, about how to please his wife. Hey, dear, what do you want in your coffee? We having toast, pancakes, or eggs this morning? What is it? He goes, there's a difference. There's a contrasting view. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, I presume to believe that many of us in this room would say, well, I'm married and I can have full devotion to God. And I pray that is absolutely true because that really is Paul's point in verse 35. Look at it with me. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He goes, listen, my hope is whether you're single or married, that you have an undivided affection and a singular focus 
and a devotion to the Lord, believing that his return is imminent and that our lives really do matter. But what he is saying is, he says, but listen, it is easier for us, and he goes, and my preference would be that you are like me, a single. He goes, we can have greater devotion than some others. Now, here's why it matters. Maybe you've struggled to follow along with me. Let me, let me just make it clear to you what this, point, this whole text is about. In a day and age where singlehood isn't celebrated, for the right reasons, singlehood really does matter. So yes, we do have more singles now than we did a decade or three decades ago. 27% of our households under roof are singles. The reason that's happening, though, is because of one of two primary reasons. One is because they don't want to be married because they've seen how marriage is distorted. Or two, they want to stay single because it permeates a selfish lifestyle in which they are the king of their own domain. What Paul is making a point of is this. To stay single doesn't mean you serve yourself. It gives you more money for nicer things and and more luxuries, the ability to travel for yourself, but is single for the purposes of serving Christ, which is different than what's being taught in our day and age. And the reason why is because singles are looking among a lot of their married friends. And, and we could be honest, a, a single lady talks to a married, friend who, a married friend who has been married for three or four years, has two kiddos in the home, and, and you're like, stay single, stay single. It's, it's not all, it's like, it's just, just stay single if you can And in a lot of ways, we're distorting God's good view of marriage. And what I want you to realize is that whether you view this in one way or the other, you're speaking about it in your language often. I have kiddos that are in the fourth, fifth, and seventh grade. And every time that Valentine's rolls around, they get asked by someone Hey, did you buy anybody a valentine? Did you receive a valentine? And in that language, what is being communicated is, hey, do you have a significant other? Is there someone that your heart beats fast for? And the question I got to ask you is, if you have the view of Paul, which is either to be single or to not burn with passion and be married, because that's the gift that God has for you. The question is, is your 13-year-old mature enough to understand biblical singlehood or biblical marriage? And if they're not, and you can answer emphatically they're not, then we have to stop celebrating this idea of relationships in the eighth grade. Why? I'll tell you why. From my own experience, a relationship in the ninth grade that doesn't, didn't honor God and, and truly changed my view of who I was. And I wish that, I wish that would have changed in my life. But listen, no one told me. Oh, here's what they told me. Here's what, hey, true love waits. Don't do this. And we didn't talk about the goodness of the gifts of God. Sex was gross. It was something we don't talk about because it it's bad. And if you do that, that's bad. And listen, that's not true. And I get it, there's a ton of parents in here like, I don't want to have that conversation. Listen, why not? Because if you don't have it, their friends will have it. And if you don't have it, your friends' friends 
and their parents will have it. I promise you, they'll learn it somewhere. So why not learn it from you? Friends, stop being scared to death. It's sex. It's how God multiplies and fills the earth. Paul clearly talks about it in a way that brings pleasure to one of us mutually in a conjugal manner. What does that mean? It means it's something we enjoy and we do often. We talk about it all the time. At least we do. All the time. Around our kids. And they have no idea, right? Now, the question I, I'm just posing to you is this. Is where are your kiddos at? Because I have this view in mind. That many of our singles walk around and they're stuck in a conundrum. And they're stuck in the conundrum for, from this vantage point. Should I get married I don't know that that's what I want at this point. And the marriages that I know of aren't all that life-giving, so that seems kind of daunting. The other point of it is, is a lot of people puts pressure on them in the societal sense of saying, hey, you're not married yet, are you weird? I was recently having a conversation with a parent who their child is getting close to graduating college. Some of their friends are getting married. And, and her question is, hey, mom, like, should I be getting married soon? How do you respond to that? Emphatically, no, no. Enjoy singlehood. And so we have one son in particular in our household. His name is Caleb, and Caleb is known as the single Pringle. He's like, I'm a single Pringle. So um, not too long ago, uh, we, were, we, were, uh, we were coming to, to church. Uh, we were coming to the building. We were going to enjoy fellowship with God's people. Um, I put on a little cologne. I go, hey, Caleb, you want some cologne? And he's like, no, I'm good. Because he sees cologne as a woman attractant. <laughs> He's like, I don't want any of that. Don't worry, Dad, I'm good. Now, here's the thing. I am convinced that the reason Caleb sees it this way is because the way we teach singlehood in our house. Singlehood is something to be celebrated. And is, as is marriage. Marriage is a great gift from God when it's done right, friends. And singlehood is too. And we continually talk about singles in our life that are in their 30s, 40s, even in their 50s, who have never been married and for the glory of God have freedom to do whatever God wants. I know of one single friend that at the end of this year is going to Israel. And I know he's, he's one of the most sought after people, at least asked about from time to time. Hey, is, is this guy dating anybody, dating anybody? And why do we ask that question? It's because we think, well, if he's not, then he, he's available. But what if it's his lot in life just to be single for the glory of God? That's not a bad thing. And that's what Paul's point is here. Why not celebrate that? You and I do not have to be married to be God's servant. And more than that, you don't have to be awkward if you're single. And we have to know that both are celebrated. As long as, verse 35 is we have undivided devotion to the Lord. And that's the key. Now, I presume to believe that there's some of you in here that are dating or that you want to date, or there's some of you in here that you want to give some advice to your kiddos at some point about, hey, when do we, when do we date? Because obviously, as parents, I've put you in a little bit of predicament, right? Okay, so now I'm lay down the hard stance. We're not, we're not giving Valentines anymore. Okay, the question is, is, when should you do that? 
when, because there is a time and a place. The question is when. And, and so real quick, let me just give you a quick framework of that. It doesn't have to be a long framework, and it doesn't have to be super theological, but you need to have a little bit of a framework. I draw kind of a little bit of my thought process from Genesis chapter 24. Now, you don't have to flip back there, but Abraham was looking for a wife for his son named Isaac. Isaac was the son of the promise. Abraham was about to die. Abraham turns to his servant and says, hey, listen, you got to get a wife for my son. If, if Isaac doesn't get a wife, then there's a breakdown. The nation of Israel isn't developed. The promise isn't, it doesn't come to fruition. And so Abraham makes an oath. He goes, listen, you have to swear on, on an oath that you're going to go and you're going to get a bride for my son. But he says, you need to be specifically clear on a few things. And he says, one, you cannot get a wife from here, the Canaanites, among the land we live. You have to go back to the homeland, and you got to go get a bride. And when you find her, you're to bring her back, which Abraham's servant then asked the question, well, Abraham, what if she won't come back with me? Then he goes, whatever you do, he doesn't leave here. He's not going. He's not going. He stays here. So he could be... He's, he's going to be unresolved. He's going to stay right here. You're going to find her. You're going to bring her back. And so Abraham's servant sets off on a long venture. And when he gets to the place where he's going, he comes upon a group of ladies at a well. And the question you've got to ask yourself, okay, well, one, why did he go to a well? And number two, what was it that he was looking at? When he arrived at the well, he prays a prayer. And he basically says, Lord, I'm looking for a woman for my servant, and his son Isaac. And Lord, I'm looking for a special type of woman, but I need your help. And he wasn't looking for merely a woman just that was at the well, although that was very important. But he also said, I need, I need a couple other things. I need, I need one for her to be someone who cares about me. That as someone who's an outsider, who I come up from a very long trip, that she would care to give me water. That she wouldn't just care about giving me water, she'd also give water to what? My animals. And then, Lord, if this be the woman too, and she does these things, and I'll know I'm on the right track, but then she's also got to be willing to go back with me because my servant made it clear that his son was not to come here. Now, the question is, is why was he looking for her at a well? Well, here's why. Because a well is life-giving. And a well is where women who worked hard were to be found. A woman who was there doing her diligence upon serving her own family, taking care of her responsibility, is the kind of woman that a young man should be looking for. That's a mature woman. So when do you start thinking about someone for your son or for your daughter? Well, when they're mature. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, well, what marks maturity? I don't know. I'll tell you for a start. There's no one dating in my house if you can't pick up your underwear. <laughs> Mark it down. I'm serious. If you can't wash out your cup, if you can't pour your milk down the drain and wash it out and put it in the, you don't need to be talking to any girl. Because all that's going to happen is there's going to be a father wanting to shoot you. And that's a fact. Mark it down. Why this matters is because we need to be looking for, as Abraham sent his servant for a mature woman, a woman who is thoughtful, not of herself, but of Abraham, 
And who else is animals? How long does it take to let a camel drink? Y'all better Google that one. Google it. (laughs) How many camels do you presume that she might have let drink before her job was done? See, this was a woman who was not only mature, but this was not a woman who was about herself. This was a servant. This is the kind of woman that you find at a well. And let me explain to you, a well is not a dance hall. A well is a faithful place and where there is life-giving responsibility and there is a full devotion to the things of God. That's where you find your man. Ladies, that's where you teach your daughter to find a man. Strike a chord. And here's what I'm going to say. Listen, and I say this out of love and kindness. But you may think, well, singlehood is so lonely. Singlehood might be lonely. There is nothing more lonely than being in a marriage where you don't have a spouse that you're yoked with. That's more lonely. And I have many of friends who are lonely in their marriage. Why yoke a single to that if the couple's not ready? Does that make sense? That's why this topic is so important. And so real quickly, just three things. One, any couple that's going to get married should be in full devotion to Christ. Full devotion. That means you're both at the well. And you know where the well is. It's the life-giving places where the Lord is at work. That's where couples ought to meet one another. Okay? Now, I wish I could tell you that was my story. It wasn't. I met her in student senate and government. But by God's grace, he took two foolish young children And by God's grace, he did something. Can God do that too? Absolutely. Aren't we stories of God's redemption in that? Yes. Is that his best plan? No, that's not his best plan. His best plan is to find two faithful people devoting themselves at the well. Yoked in Christ, imitating Christ, full devotion. So yoked in Christ is a really big deal. That means they're not two oxen going in a different direction. Well, mom, she's, she's just a Mormon. She's a good person. Hey, are you yoked in the same? Do you believe the same things? Are you going the same way? That's an important thing for your young, your young child. It's an important thing for you. The second thing is, is that there's a passion, but that it's restrained. A passion restrained. Listen, I have no problem with two young people loving one another. But I'll take you back to Song of Solomon. We talked about that last week. One of my favorite messages I've probably preached in the last three years was Song of Solomon last week. But let me show you this in Song of Solomon chapter two, just so you see it. Look what it says. This is the young lady. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. She said, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples for I am sick with love. Is that passion? Absolutely. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now look, if your passion goes too far, that left hand is not under her head. Understand? Which is important. It's important, and her point is that there is attraction. But if you remember this woman and who she was as a, as a person, she says, listen, I'm not going to come, I'm not gonna come to you at your shepherding with, with a veil. I'm not coming as other ladies come. I'm different. And I think that's important. And then look what she says to the young ladies of Israel. She says this in verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does she mean? 
She says, don't let your passion get ahead of yourself. When does love awaken? When does it please? According to the Song of Solomon, it's on the consummation of your wedding night. So friends, purity, that's the third point, really matters. And I think that's something that we have to talk more about. In a culture, listen, we spend a whole lot of time, and this might shock you when I say this, we spend a whole lot of time talking about homosexual relationships. But we spend very, time, very, very little time talking about heterosexual relationships and couples living together before they're married. And I will just tell you, the way I read the scriptures, both can be redeemed, but both are not what God's design is. And church, I think we've got to get off of our big old huge pedestal over here of saying, well, this is not the way it is when we're allowing things to not be what God pleases. And so full devotion to Christ is either singlehood or it's a dating relationship that pleases God for the purpose of marriage. And that should happen when two people are yoked in the same direction, mature, at the well, ready to serve one another and a handful of camels along the way who will suck you dry for the glory of God and the good of others. That, my friends, is what Paul's saying. You'll never see 1 Corinthians 7 the same way. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for this morning. We pray, Lord, for your help as we walk out of this place. Lord, may you use this message not to make us feel guilty, not to... But Lord, if you stir up some conviction in us, I pray it's from your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, enable us to do what is right. As you say in Philippians, that we are to shine like stars in the universe. Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would be salt and light, that Lord, that we would be pure, devoted, undefiled, dressed fine linen, white and clean, that Lord, that would be who we are. Whether we are single or married, I pray that we would resolve to be your people, undivided and secure in our devotion to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.